today. Well, on Sunday, it was Tom Kim in Las Vegas who made history by defending his title in the Shriners Children's Open. Kim fired rounds of 62 and 66 to grab the victory and with the win, became the youngest three-time winner on the PGA Tour since Tiger Woods. And this week, the PGA Tour heads across the Pacific Ocean to Japan for the Zozo Championship. You can catch live first-round coverage tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern Time right here on Golf Channel. And with that, we welcome you into Golf Today. Great to have you here with us on a Wednesday. Kira K. Dixon here, pleased to be alongside the one and only Eamon Lynch. Eamon, I've been waiting years, a lifetime, to get to say those words. My first time co-hosting Golf Today with you. You're the first woman who's ever actually uttered those words, Kira. And I think this might be the first time we've ever sat at a table where there wasn't a bottle of wine between us. So I hope we can yes. be interesting, because we're usually more interesting with the wine. We are fairly interesting with a glass of vino here and there. So we'll see how this goes. We've got two hours to work out the kinks on that. I'm going to try to not let her unbridled <laughs> cynicism drag down my usual bubbly effervescence. Well, as Kira mentioned, the PGA Tour is in Tokyo this week for the Zozo Championship. Here are the highest ranked players in the field, six of the world's top 30. The highest ranked being Xander Shoffley, Keegan Bradley. They're the defending champion. And some of the stars talked to the media overnight our time, and they're still talking about that Ryder Cup in Rome a couple of weeks ago. We were able to make it somewhat interesting on Sunday, which was pretty cool feeling. Um, it felt like the tournament slipped away really early on, and uh, myself and I know the rest of the guys wish we could have sort of stabilized or you know settled the ship earlier on just to make it feel like we weren't coming from behind the whole time. But um, that was my first time playing uh, Ryder Cup abroad, and the fans were great, and uh, I had a lot of fun, despite the losing. Your father suggested that Ryder Cup players be paid. Many people think that's probably a fair suggestion. What are the obstacles to having that happen, and what do you think the resistance is to it from the public in general? In other words, you guys get paid for everything else. Why not this? Uh, I mean, if you look at what he said, uh, you know, I wasn't super fired up that he was speaking to media, um, just because I know how things get twisted, and you know, I had to look back uh, at what he said specifically, and he specifically said that if if the tournament's for profit, then uh, players should get uh, paid, and he also said that uh, if it's charitable, it should be a charitable event most likely, and that everything should get donated. So. I don't know, when I look back on what he said, I think the headlines sort of skewed, obviously, what he was trying to say, but um, I don't think he ever really spoke directly to, to what you're referring to in terms of players getting paid. He just said it should be, you know, either or. Not really, uh, you know, as confusing as it is. How much motivation is what happened at the Ryder Cup coming in this tournament? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's motivation that all of us needed to play a bit better. We had a, we had a few guys that did play well that week, but not enough. Um, it seemed like all 12 of the, the European guys stepped up and, and played some darn good golf. Um, so yeah, coming off of that, it was, it was unfortunate. We had a, you know, myself and a couple other guys that weren't feeling very well. So I'm, I'm happy to be in a, in a healthy spot and excited to, to play some, some better golf than I, I did in, um, in Rome. So. They're always really fun weeks, yeah, special weeks to be a part of. Um, they just happen to be a lot more fun when you're on the winning side. Nothing's carried over. I mean, uh, look, the Ryder Cup was a, 
was what it was, and that's, you know, the final result. Um, but, you know, for me, being my first one over there on, on European soil and, and playing against them and obviously having a, a pretty, uh, pretty big loss, um, I think there's things to learn. You know, I think there's things to take into um, whether it's future Ryder Cups or even just regular tournaments. You know, I think you learn a lot in those team events on, on just who you are as a person, how you play golf. Um, look, when, two years ago when we played really well at Whistling Straits, you know, you could use that momentum. You know, I, I'm not going to, I can't use momentum from, I, I'm not going to use momentum from a loss, but I can learn from a loss and take that into, you know, whether it's this week or next week or whatever it may be and just kind of learn from it. Um, but there's no hinder, you know, there's no lingering anger from losing at a Ryder Cup into coming into a, a week like this. You know, they're, they're two different things. It's one's a team event and this is, you know, normal individual golf. Well, certainly no lingering anger for Colin Morikawa because he's in Japan having some incredible meals. Here he is with the legendary Jiro Dreams of Sushi. I don't know if you've seen that documentary, Eamon, but Jiro is the one of the most famous sushi chefs in the world, not just in Japan. And Colin and his wife Kat got to, and his agent Andrew Kipper there got to have probably the meal of a lifetime. I'm guessing that reservation doesn't come easily either. He may actually need to win this week to break even yes. having dinner in there. Well, speaking of, that, that'll absolutely motivate you to get the job done to make sure you can cover the bill. And speaking of getting paid, Xander's uh, <laughs> yes. comments were quite interesting there. This, And he's covering for his father a little bit there because his father had kind of made clear and has made this argument in the past, his belief that players ought to be paid for the Ryder Cup, which in and of itself isn't a particularly controversial argument. I don't think it should be. But... This idea of if it's charity versus a for-profit, well, that's kind of a gray area here because it's not necessarily for charity, but where does the money go? Mm. And the money isn't necessarily squandered from the Ryder Cup here. From the PGA of America standpoint, it's going back into the, all of the programs they have for the 28, 29,000 members out there who are actually doing something to kind of grow this game and bring people into this game, it's not as though the revenues from the Ryder Cup are just going on on private jets and fat cat executives, although the PGA of America, like every other organization, does have some of that, but the revenue here is going to a noble purpose. It's not strictly for charity, and that's where I think Xander's gonna step on some landmines here. It's the, the issue should be where is the money going to, and it's not necessarily just being pocketed into a cash reserve fund. There is a noble purpose at stake here because the entire four-year budget cycle of the PGA of America is based on the revenues brought usually from domestic Ryder Cups, but from any Ryder Cup. Yeah, so perhaps the PGA of America could be a bit better about messaging where it is that the, the budget is going and the initiatives that it, it is funding based on what happens at the Ryder Cup. And I thought it was interesting that he said that he wasn't quite pleased that his dad had spoken to the media, that he went back and looked at the comments specifically uh, and made a differentiation between, you know, if it all goes to charity, that's something that they could all agree upon, although I think that's a lot easier said than done because everybody has their own ideas of where things should go and the, the things that it should fund outside of, of course, what the PGA of America and its mission is doing. But 
I think there's also a lot to be said for the fact that players can really build their own brands on on participating in a Ryder Cup. You're pretty much guaranteed after dinner speaking for the rest of your life, the endorsements that come with that, um, and a whole host of other things that don't necessar necessarily have to be a signed check that day. Sure, and you look at, so particularly on the European side, guys like Colin Montgomery, Ian Poulter, Paul McGinley, they all built careers ostensibly on what they did in Ryder Cups rather than in major championships. Sander right now doesn't have that major championship on his resume, but he does have a pretty good team record, both in President's Cup and in Ryder Cup. And to me, this is, in a way, it's a losing argument, even if there is merit to the idea that they ought to be paid for their time, since everyone else who's there is being paid for their time. It's not a meritless argument, but you're trying to tell the American public that patriotism is transactional. And I think mm -hmm. that's always going to be a losing argument. It's always going to be a tough sell. And the European guys really don't have that. They're playing under this kind of amorphous flag, uh, the blue and yellow of Europe. They're not necessarily hostage to their own particular nation. Maybe a little bit of pride, not so much the patriotism burden that those guys have to carry that the U.S. guys do. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure that debate will continue to rage on over the next two years as we look to bringing the cup back to the States. And speaking of golf around the world, time now for a DP World Tour update. On Sunday, Matthew Pavone broke through for his first victory on the DP World Tour, holding off John Rahm and Marcel Seam to win the Spanish Open by four shots. He finished with a final round seven under 64. Pavone's final round included seven birdies and no bogeys. He dropped only three shots all week at the Club de Campo Villa de Madrid. The 30-year-old Frenchman making his 185th start had only two victories on the Alps Tour and finished second three times on the European Tour and another three times on the European Challenge Tour. And this is the first time we're going to see one of the effects of the strategic alliance between the DP World Tour and the PGA Tour. The top 10 players not otherwise holding a PGA Tour card will be awarded one at the end of this season with the race to Dubai, which concludes next month in Dubai. And here is the current top 10 list of those guys who would potentially be a factor on the PGA Tour next season, including the recent winner at Wentworth, Brian Fox, and another former Ryder Cup hero winner, Thorbjorn. Olison. Well, to dig in on this a little bit more, we're going to welcome in the BBC's golf correspondent, Ian Carter. Ian, thanks for joining us. This is going to be an interesting scenario when this plays out with the top 10 guys who have the option then of going to the PGA Tour. There's been some criticism from guys like, say, Lee Westwood, Ian Poulter, that it somehow dilutes the DP World Tour by giving away their 10 best players. But is this really just creating a pipeline the players have always wanted to face better quality competition on a more lucrative tour? Yeah, I think it's, uh, Eamon, been brought in uh, because the, the, the tour is there for its members and what's the best thing that they can do for their, for their members? It's to provide the opportunities to play in the biggest and best tournaments around the world. And as we know, the, the, all the aces sit with the PGA Tour these days, perhaps more so than ever before. So it is a natural uh, sort of byproduct, if you like, of the strategic alliance. And it does offer that motive for those players, should they want to go to America. I notice that Bob McIntyre, for example, is really weighing up very hard whether or not he would go and, and settle in America and play the PGA Tour. Is that what he, he really wants? Is that the lifestyle that he wants? I suspect that ultimately he will probably decide that that is the best thing for him. 
But equally, he's saying, well, I played in a winning Ryder Cup team and that might be enough for me. And I think that then points you in the direction of where that, that feeling of unease about this actually sits. We saw how motivated Europe were against the United States. There is that chip on the European shoulder and that feeling that the European tour is now officially a feeder, feeder system into the PGA Tour, well, that doesn't sit comfortably with a lot of people around the European golf scene and a lot of fans. Uh, Ian, speaking of that feeling of unease, you wrote on the BBC's website that there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to the future of professional golf, with everything going around uh, being very clouded between the PGA Tour's potential framework agreement with the Saudis, if that is going to come to fruition, if potential private equity might be at play. If I'm a golf fan, how do you <laughs> distill this down and explain this to me in a way that I can understand in terms of where we're at when we think about the future of pro golf? Well, it's just so difficult, isn't it? I, I mean, I tried to do that in, in that piece. I'm not sure how successful it was because the situation is just so complex, so shrouded un in uncertainty and show, so shrouded in secrecy as well. And who knows how this is, is going to pan out. But I think that that sense of euphoria that I think uh, certainly on this side of the pond that was felt in the wake of, of the Ryder Cup, that has dissipated a little bit by the knowledge that we just don't know what the shape of men's professional golf is going to be going forward. What are the implications of the framework agreement actually coming to fruition? Is that going to be possible? Is the added investment that the PGA Tour is seeking is that to replace the, the framework agreement with the, the PIF, or is that to supplement it? We just don't know. And it's going to be fascinating to see how this, this plays out in the coming months. But there seems to be a clock ticking. The mood music seems to be a little pessimistic about whether or not the deal can be done with Saudi Arabia. And there are those who will feel that that potentially is a good thing if the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour can go in a different direction away from Saudi Arabia. But we still don't know. What we do know is that there needs to be that cash injection if they are going to be rival entities to live, because we know that the pockets that, that, that finance live are as deep as, as they can be. Isn't there a knock-on effect in all of this for the Ryder Cup, particularly the qualification process in European? When you put it in the context of the top 10 European guys potentially moving on to the PGA Tour each year, they've currently got the world points list and the European points list. And the world points list is designed to accommodate the top guys who don't play that much in Europe, predominantly on the PGA Tour. If that's heavily oversubscribed with guys who aren't competing as often in Europe as they used to, well, then there's going to be an imbalance there in terms of making up the teams in the future. Do you think that's something that's a pressing concern for Ryder Cup Europe? Uh, yeah, I think it's a, a very, very good point that you've made there, Eamon, because you, you've, you've described it exactly right. You will have too many Europeans going for too few spots on the world list. And so an imbalance to that to that qualifying system. Now, it may well be that whoever takes over for Beth Page or whether Luke Donald remains in position as captain will, I, I would imagine, have that at the top of their agenda. But equally, if you suddenly turn around and say, well, we need to address that point and then reduce the number of qualifying berths from the tournaments that are played over here in Europe, 
well, that diminishes the value of those tournaments and, again, just plays into that narrative that the DP World Tour is nothing more than a feeder to the PGA Tour. And, again, Europe is a very proud entity in terms of men's professional golf, and they they don't want that diminished. European fans don't want that. We we saw how how much that European Ryder Cup victory was enjoyed, and that's symptomatic of how we feel and have traditionally felt about the European tour. So anything that diminishes that is not going to be welcome, I don't think, with European golf fans. And we heard news earlier this week that the OWGR has officially declined to offer world ranking points to live golfers. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau said that this is something that's just par for the course in terms of what they've experienced so far this year. What was your reaction uh, to that news? Well, I, I think it, it, I was I was slightly surprised because. Again, the mood music was was a little more encouraging uh, around that, especially when you saw the pairings for the uh, recent Alfred Dunhill Lynx Championship, when his ex his excellency was uh, was paired with Peter Dawson, the chairman of OWGR, and that seemed to suggest that maybe they were uh, on very good terms, and who knows, they might have found a way to provide ranking points for Liv. But I think the explanation that was given. Uh, by OWGR, the fact that it was technical rather than political, that's what they insisted was the case. You could see that that it all made perfect sense. I, I was always very uncomfortable that something that has a, a, a team element to the individual competition could be compromised in terms of the overall impact of what a player does and the motive for what that player does, lagging a putt. Uh, rather than going for it, as was the case with Ortiz and or Orlando with Brooks Kepka, although that's been denied subsequently by Ortiz. It's, it, it, I, I've always felt that that was a potential issue, as is the, the, the access uh, to, to live, the fact that players can be in the relegation zone on live, but they can preserve their status on live if they're a team captain. You know, these are all areas that are so fundamentally different to the way that all the other tours that are part of the OWGR uh, are concerned is, is you know, they're, they're fundamental difficulties. And I think, you know, people have made the point that, you know, if you were setting up a new entity, then surely the best thing to do if you want world ranking points is to go to the governing body and say, what is it that we have to do? What criteria do we have to satisfy and make that one of their founding principles. Well, that certainly didn't happen in the case of Liv, and it's come back uh, to bite them. But the key thing from all of this is access to the majors. And I just wonder now what the majors are going to do and what they're going to say in terms of trying to find mechanisms to bring players into their fields who surely have to be considered among the very best in the world, because it's not in the majors' interest not to have those players in their fields. Last week, Bryson DeChambeau suggested that the top 12 live guys, fully a quarter of the entire live roster, ought to be automatically exempted into majors. Martin Slumbers at the RNA has been the most conciliatory in his public remarks towards live, certainly in the last year. Do you see a scenario, Ian, where the Open Championship or the other majors do carve out exemptions for live guys? I, I think it's inevitable, Eamon, because, as I say, they need to have the best players in the world there. And, you know, whatever you think of Taylor Gooch, for, for example, you, you have to acknowledge that he is 
a player of a standing that is way higher than is reflected in the OWGR and in all probability should be a player who uh, is competing for the biggest titles in the game. I think that Seth War has been pretty conciliatory as well from the PGA of America's standpoint. And I sense a, a, a softening, I sensed a softening in Mike Wan's attitude when we were at the US Open last year compared with 12 months earlier. So I do think that they will move in that direction. I think that it's a very glib thing for Bryson DeChambeau to say, right, just make it the top 12. I mean, what equations have gone into that? But maybe mini order of merits uh, on, on live could be one way to go. That was something that was suggested on a podcast I was on earlier this week by Eddie Pepperell, the DP World Tour player who plays, who's a member of the, the tournament committee on the DP World Tour. So um, that, that could be something that they will look at. But I do think that they need to put mechanisms in place. And Ian, I just have to ask you about the passing of Ivor Robson, the voice of the Open. You've covered many an Open championship. Uh, in all your recollections of Ivor, what does his contribution to golf mean to you? Well, I think he was quintessential Open championship, right down to the, the gentle Scottish burr of his Borders accent, the way that he delivered things, the, the calmness in which he, he did the job, the famed uh, ability to be able to do that, that job all day long. And remember, the Open Championship isn't like uh, the, the, the other majors, your side of the pond, uh, the Masters accepted. It's a 1T start. So he started at 6.30 in the morning, finished at 4.30 in the afternoon without a break, without even taking a comfort break. And that became a, a kind of legendary sideshow. But you can never recall a moment of a, a foot being put wrong. Uh, we've seen from so many of the players with their expressions of condolences in the, the wake of this sad news, just how much he meant to them, his calming process uh, and presence on the, the, the first tee when, as we know, it's a very stomach-churning moment to kick off an Open Championship. And he did everything with real class. And I think that that is the thing that we'll remember most about Ivor Robson. Not many people got to know him very well. He was a very quiet, private man. Uh, he had a very public role, and then he just took himself away and would just melt into the background at the many tournaments that he started on the DP World Tour, as well as the Ryder Cup. I don't think he was ever particularly comfortable at the Ryder Cup. It was all a little bit raucous for, for, for Ivor <laughs> on those occasions, but he was just simply perfect for that role at the Open Championship. And I think it's uh, absolutely right that he is being remembered so fondly this week. And as we know, Americans tend to think that Brits with the accent in golf are all eccentric characters. Ivor was certainly one of those. <laughs> I suppose they think the same of you as well, Ian. Thanks for spending a few moments with us this morning. Cheers. Thank you. Well, after the break, we're going to hear a little more about Ivor Robson, the longtime starter at the Open Championship and one of the most recognisable characters in the entire sport. He passed away earlier this week at the age of 83. We'll be right back. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Choose. 
The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Ivor Robson, the voice of the Open Championship for nearly a half century, has died. He was 83. Robson began his career as the first tee announcer at the Open in 1975 at Carnoustie. For 41 years, he was a first tee fixture, having never missed a championship or a tee time as he famously avoided bathroom breaks. His distinctive Scottish accent began thousands of rounds at the Open and on the DP World Tour with his signature on the tee introduction. Martin Slumbers of the RNA chief executive said, we are deeply saddened to hear of Ivor's passing as official starter at the Open for over 40 years. His voice was instantly recognizable and synonymous with the championship for players and millions of golf fans worldwide. He was popular and well-respected among all golfers who played in the Open, and I know that they will share in our sadness at this news. On behalf of all of us at the RNA, I would like to convey our heartfelt condolences to his wife of 61 years, Leslie, and the Robson family. And players are also marking the passing of Ivor Robson. This from Tiger Woods. Thank you, Ivor, for making each one of my open starts so memorable. And another three-time winner of the Claret Jug, Gary Player, tweeted this, the voice of the Open Championship. So many incredible memories with Ivor over the years. Rest in peace, my friend. We're joined now by Johnny Cole Hamilton, the executive director of championships at the RNA, who worked closely with Ivor Robson for a very long time. Johnny, I assume you're not surprised by the scale of tributes we've seen to Ivor in the last 24 hours from people, entities, legends in this game? No, not surprised at all. Uh, and absolutely fully deserved. I mean, he was a, a wonderful man who. Uh, gave everything to the job of official staff at the Open Championship. Uh, a man without any ego whatsoever, who carried out the job very professionally, who always took his time setting up his uh, staffer's desk on the first tee. I often helped him with that. He was very meticulous about going over the draw and making sure he got everybody's name right. And he, he, he did a very good job of treading the line very carefully with how he spoke to players, uh, you know, that warm personality he had, but he never crossed the line in all of his over 40 years on the first tee of the Open Championship. He, he was a wonderful ambassador for the Open, and uh, he'll be greatly missed by everybody at the RNA, and we clearly, like everybody else, wish him and his, wish all of his family, uh, they have our thoughts, and we wish them all the very best. Wonderful man. Yeah, wonderful man indeed. Uh, Johnny Ivor was, of course, so much more than a first tee announcer. His first Open Championship was back in 1975. Can you tell us a little bit about his backstory and how he came to be in that position on that first tee? Yeah, I mean, I'm pleased to say I was only four years old in 1975. That's how uh, long um, Ivor has been around. But yeah, he did. He started at Carnoustie in 1975, and he never missed an Open Championship or indeed a tea time 
right up until his final announcement announcing Paul Dunn at the 2015 Open at St Andrews. And of course, he he was a Rolex ambassador and did a lot of starting on the DP World Tour as well. I mean, he, he made it a career. But the thing I would say about Ivor is a lot of people would be mistaken to think it was an easy job to do. You know, he was standing up there announcing the best players in the world at a golf course, often watched by four or 5,000 people around the first tee uh, and also 80 million odd people around the world. And he never put a foot wrong. He really didn't. He was a real professional. And I think the greatest compliment I could pay him is I, uh, this is my 25th Open coming up. I did 16 Open Championships with Ivor. And he felt very much part of the team, the RNA and the Open. It's a huge team effort to get the Open done. And uh, Ivor was part of that team and always felt like part of it. And uh, he'd be greatly missed by us all. You talked about the preparation he went through with a list of names, making sure all the pronunciations were correct. Almost 19,000 players he announced on the first day of the Open over those 40 years. Why do you think it was so many players seemed to have such affection for him in remembering him in the last day? I, th I think because he did the job so professionally. And as I said, he took a great... He was very careful about how he approached the players. He did have a lot of banter with them over the years, but he also respected the fact that they were playing in the Open Championship, the oldest major of them all, and uh, he understood how important it was not to cross that line in terms of the banter, but also giving them the space to prepare themselves for you know, the start uh, of the Open for them each day. And he, he always treaded, he, he always walked that line very, very well. And that's one of the many things that made him so good. And clearly anyone that gives themselves over to 40 years plus of doing something and doing it so professionally is going to garner respect from everybody. He had my total respect and everyone on my team's total respect. And we've all been a bit sad today, but we've also been very pleased to see how much he was admired around the world. and. Uh, it's more than deserving. I mean, I was very privileged to be at the uh, past champions dinner when he came along on his last Open Championship and saw the affection all the players had for him. It was wonderful to see him. Very, very well deserved. Well, speaking of that affection that players have for him, Johnny, we saw tributes pouring in from the likes of Tiger Woods, Ian Poulter, Gary Player, Ricky Fowler. You know, the list goes on and on. What is it about the ideals that Ivor represented that are also mir mirrored within the ideals of the Open Championship? And he respected the players. I mean, he, he respected what they were doing. He respected their skill. He respected them as individuals. He had a very healthy respect for the Open Championship, uh, which is obviously if you're working at the Open for as long as he did it, he had a passion for it, but he also had a healthy respect for the history of the Open Championship and very much respected those that were trying to become the champion golfer of the year. And he understood, clearly understood how difficult it is to become the champion golfer of the year and what it, the dedication it takes. And he thought he was playing a small part, but he played a pretty large part in our history over 40 odd years at the Open Championship of 
helping the players get off to a relaxed start in what can be a very challenging circumstance and all sorts of weathers. I mean, I can't tell you how many umbrellas I've seen either under. But to not miss one Open Championship or one tea time over a 40-year period when, you know, on Thursday and Friday, he's going from half six in the morning till after four o'clock in the afternoon. It's quite a dedication to the Open Championship and it's great that he's been remembered so fondly for the part he played. Really was one of the great characters in the history of the Open Championship and in the history of this game. Johnny, thanks for taking a few moments out of your day to share your remembrances of Ivor Robson. Well, thank you for giving me and the honour an opportunity to say thank you to him. Thank you, Ivor. Some more players with remembrances of Ivor Robson. This from former world number one Luke Donald, a gentleman with a unique voice that set us off on our journeys. Thank you for your dedication to our beautiful sport. R.I.P. Ivor. And from Trevor Immelman, the former Masters champion, always got to the tee a minute or two early to have a chat with Ivor, the voice of the Open. R.I.P. When he retired after 41 years as a starter at the Open in 2015 at St Andrews, Ivor Robson said simply, it's time to go. He is survived by his wife, Leslie, of 61 years, and the Robson family. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxiloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. for this week in golf history. It was in 2019 when Tiger Woods won the Zozo Championship to secure his 82nd career victory on the PGA Tour, tying Sam Snead for the all-time tour wins record. Woods finished with a final round 64 that day, and while he still sits at 82 PGA Tour wins, he's entered into some new ventures. Now, last year, Tiger Woods announced the creation of the TGL, that's a new tech-infused team golf league in partnership with the PGA Tour that will kick off in January of 2024. The team concept will include a large group of talented star players. And let's take a look at the field here. Of course, Tiger Woods, Rory, Masters champ John Rahm, uh, some Ryder Cuppers, Xander Shoffley, Justin Thomas, Ricky Fowler, who's in the field this week at Zozo, along with Colin Morikawa. A lot of great names here, Aiden. Yeah, it's a veritable who's who because the list carries on. Terrell Hutton, Shane Lowry, Keegan Bradley, Sahith Tagala, Cameron Young, Patrick Cantley among the group that was just announced earlier this week in terms of the rounding out the schedule. And there are six teams here, Kieran. What's your read on this? I mean, it's like everything else in golf. There's a lot of unknowns. We don't quite know. All we know is where and when. Palm Beach Gardens, January 9th, in the stadium that they're building, uh, beyond that, we don't necessarily know a lot about who's on what teams. What's your curiosity level on this? 
No, I've, I'm very curious about how all of this is going to, you know, of course we know the field list, but is there a drafting system of how people make it onto certain teams? So far we know about four existing teams. Are there going to be more than that announced prior to the January 9th date? You know, January 9th is, that's coming very soon. We're looking at you know, the holidays, Christmas, and then all of a sudden, boom, we're back on the PGA Tour. And I believe that the venue has also not been built yet as well. So what is that going to look like? Uh, the studio audience, how big will that be? You know, these are all, of course, questions that they'll flush out and I'm sure that there will be kinks in the beginning but um, you know I'm I'm positive about it I want to of course give it a chance see what it's like and something new for golf uh, it's never really a bad thing I, I, what I'm most curious about is whether or not it would get to the point where the audience who's I get that the audience who's there in the stadium will be into whatever trash talking golfers are lousy trash talkers but whatever they attempt to do for trash talking and the entertainment value of being there for the live event I get that. I'm just curious whether or not fans will care about what the standings are in you know week four, week five, week six. And I, I would also be curious to see what's the extension of this beyond just this winter season, because this isn't going to be a, just simply a contained few week period in, in the season. To, for this franchise to have value, I think ultimately it expands beyond what it currently is on paper. Yeah, well, speaking of trash talk, you know, they announced uh, Kevin Kisner is one of the personalities that's going to to be in the room, and he's certainly somebody that, that brings that sort of thing. I was hoping to see uh, some women announced in, in the field, and I know that the PGA Tour is a, a partner here, and they're really looking to perhaps focus on the star PGA Tour players first and establish a product. But when it comes to expanding and doing something new, I feel like that's kind of a, a natural segue. Considering that Lexi could well have beaten some of these guys who are in the field for TGL based on how she played last week in Vegas, I would argue the reason you haven't seen women announcing it to this point is what does it become? And in whatever is going on in the world of golf right now, clearly there is going to be the possibility of team golf in some form in the future for the PGA Tour, whether it's in relation to this deal with the Saudis or even from a private equity standpoint as well. And whatever that is, this to me smells like the potential seed of that, that we can have this for those dreary Monday nights in the winter as a, as a TV spectacle. But is there a, <clears throat> excuse me, is there a green grass component down the road where you will actually see live matches on live golf courses between the same teams? And then what does that turn into? Is there a playoff series some point later in the year after the FedEx Cup has wrapped up? for this kind of team component. And because it is a potential PGA Tour competitive product moving forward, I suspect that may be why it's been drawn from the ranks, particularly of PGA Tour mm -hmm. players right now. And it's also a way of safeguarding guys who might otherwise have been tempted to live because if you're in live, you're not in this. Yeah, speaking of live, I'm sure that this has been a huge point in those ongoing discussions and the framework agreement of whether or not um, that is going to come to fruition uh, in the future. Now, uh, speaking of Tiger Woods, the Hero World Challenge field was announced. We've got lots of exciting golf to look forward to.
Scotty Scheffler, world number one. Victor Hovland. Uh, Keegan Bradley, defending champion this week in the Zozo Championship. Colin Moore, Kyle will be in the field. But there was a space, Eamon, left open for a potential tournament exemption. And Joel Damon tweeted and said he wants it to be him. He posted this. I just sent in my resume. Hey, at Tiger Woods, pick me. So, Tiger, if you're listening, Joel is ready and willing to come to the Bahamas. Eamon, do you think... <laughs> I think that that would be an incredible idea. Now, still ahead on golf today, we're getting closer to this year's edition of the Asia-Pacific Amateur Championship, where a Masters invite is on the line. Next, we'll be joined by Bo Jin, who nearly won the title last year and looks for redemption following a close call. Stay tuned. Golf Central Update, brought to you by Callaway Golf. We're back on golf today. The 2023 edition of the Asia Pacific Amateur Championship will take place at Royal Melbourne Golf Club October 26th through 29th. The championship returns nine years after Royal Mel Melbourne first hosted in 2014. Here is what the winner receives. An invitation to compete in the 2024 Masters Tournament, an exemption into the 152nd Open Championship at Royal Troon in July, and an exemption into the 129th amateur championship and someone who knows what it's like to come agonizingly close to winning those is Bo Jin who's a senior at Oklahoma State from China is about to compete in the Asia Pacific amateur championship for the fourth time Bo you were agonizingly close last year you had the lead with a few holes to play you stumbled late Harrison Crow played really well down the stretch how long did it take for the sting of that to go away I'm um, not gonna lie probably a couple of weeks it definitely stings a little bit knowing uh, what I miss online, but I just do think it's a really good experience. I mean, Harrison played well. Harrison started with the lead, but I caught back to him. I think I think he really deserves a win that day, and me making a pretty crucial mistake on 17 definitely hurts. Now, Bo, the, a big thing about being successful in this game is learning from those types of moments. When you think about the player that you were in Thailand a year ago versus the player that you are now as you get ready to get on that plane to Australia on Saturday, how much have you grown over the last year when it comes to your golf game? Um, I think I've grown a lot. Like, obviously, I don't think I'm playing very well right now just because I'm going through some swing changes, but I think in my I think there's growth in my mindset and my short game error. And I think golf is a sport where you can experience up and down, and you never know when you're gonna have a good week. So I'm really looking forward to the Asia Pacific this year. Your brother Chang won the tournament back in 2015. How much do you want to take away bragging rights in the family that he has over you right now? A lot. I feel like I first. My first Asia Pacific was in Shoshan, China, and almost every interview I, I go to, there will be a question about how do you feel as a younger brother of a former winner. And I, obviously, I'm really proud of him for winning that, and I'm glad that I was able to go to Augusta with him. But definitely being on the same level with him will be a great opportunity. Now, Bo, you have a little bit more experience at this golf course at Royal Melbourne than maybe the rest of the field. You were on that Junior President's Cup team back in 2019, got to experience it, and then you also got to watch the practice rounds uh, for the President's Cup as well. Of course, Tiger Woods was the captain. What do you remember most about the golf course and what stood out to you about the experience? 
Uh, well, it's going to be different this time because last time it was like a team event, so it was an alternate shot, single match play, and best ball. But what I remember the most was there was a hole where there was a huge force run, but we would still have to land it in the force run for it to bounce up. It's going to be really firm and really windy this week, so we'll see how it goes. Do you allow yourself to dream of that potential tea time? at Augusta National next, next April, Bo, or is that something you put out of your mind and just try to focus on the golf right now? Uh, I think I'm just trying to focus on my golf right now. I mean, obviously, if I'm able to win and play Augusta, that would be an amazing opportunity. I think that's what a golfer dream of, is to have a tee time at Augusta National, especially playing in the Masters. But I just try to stay present and focus on what's ahead of me. Maybe, maybe a counting test tomorrow. That's what I'm focusing on right now. <laughs> Well, I think that we we would need luck with the accounting class, but best of luck to you, Bo, in finishing up all your homework prior to the flight on Saturday and enjoy the experience down in Australia. Thank you. Thank you, guys. The PGA Tour touches down far from home this week, Tokyo, Japan, to be exact, for the Zozo Championship. A reminder, you can catch live first-round coverage tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern time right here on Golf Channel. Hour two of Golf Today starts right now. Golf Today. Welcome back into Golf Today. Eamon Lynch alongside Kira K. Dixon. Kira, we're going to talk some college kids mm -hmm. right now, but you're out there on tour a lot. You see guys like the, the Gordon Sargents of the world and um, Michael Thorbjörns and those guys out there. They all look as though they are ready to compete right now. Ludwig Eber is another example of that. Absolutely. I just saw Ludwig Aubert at, uh, in Jackson, Mississippi at the Sanderson Farms. And I mean, it's pretty impressive. He looks like he is a PGA Tour player. You kind of forget that he, just a few months ago, he was living in relative anonymity and he was uh, a college student. But it, they always, um, they don't miss a moment to remind you of just how much older you are than, than them. Uh, I had Sam Bennett say, thank you, ma'am, to me, which was very polite of him. But I was like, man, I'm a ma'am now. So they make you feel old. How do you think you make me feel? Although only one of us was playing pickleball this week, and it wasn't me. But Gordon Sargent, he's a junior at Vanderbilt, and he's earned the 20 points necessary via the PGA Tour University Accelerated Program after teeing it up at the World Amateur Team Championship. And he's making history. He's now gotten his PGA Tour card. And let's take a look at the latest PGA Tour University ranking. As we look at the top 10, a reminder that the player who holds the top spots in these rankings at the conclusion of the NCAA Individual Championships will receive PGA Tour membership. And players outside of the top spot will receive varying levels of playing privileges on the Corn Ferry Tour and the other umbrella tours in the PGA Tour network. And one name you'll notice on this top 20 list is Cole Anderson of Florida State, who recently held the Knowles to a strong finish at the Jackson T. Stevens Cup. Cole Anderson's also a senior on that Florida State men's golf team. This year he earned a preseason spot on the Haskins Award watch list, which will be given to the top player in men's college golf at season's end. In his junior season, the Maine native played in all 12 tournaments for the Seminoles, hosted 27 rounds at par or better, and earned his first collegiate win. And this is the bio for young Cole Anderson, currently 49th in the World Amateur 
golf ranking won the main amateur back-to-back -back years 2019 2020 also a former new england pga junior winner it's a growing resume cole anderson joins us now from tallahassee cole you've now crept into the top 15 on this pga tour university rankings how much is that in your mind as you work through this last season in college in terms of what your next steps are I think you try and ignore it as much as you can. Um, the only thing you control is going out and trying to play as good a golf as you can. And, um, you know, you'll fall on that ranking where you will. Um, I would say it's it's impossible to not not think about it from time to time. But um, for the most part, you you focus on your team golf, um, you know, trying to get your, your college team to a national championship. And, uh, you know, when it's all said and done, we'll we'll figure out where we're going to play next. Now, Eamon just mentioned that it's – Pretty impressive to see somebody like Ludwig Aubert, who received that PGA Tour status from finishing number one in the PGA Tour U rankings. I know that you mentioned that you kind of try to put that stuff aside and focus on the good golf. But how much are you paying attention to what he's been able to do through this program in terms of um, how you strategize, how you plan to use it for your potential professional career moving forward? Yeah, I think it's great all around the, you know, the fact that the tour um, – put this together for us uh, to give players a more direct route um, into professional golf. Um, and then just to see, you know, Ludwig and there's a bunch of guys out on Corn Ferry Tour that are already winning. Um, and, you know, just to sort of reaffirm that um, college golf <laughs> does prepare you for pro golf. Um, and these guys are, are coming out more ready than ever um, just to get after it. You proved that last year, Cole. You played a Corn Ferry Tour event in Maine. You had the 54-hole lead, eventually finished tied third. What did you take away from that experience in terms of your preparedness? Yeah, I think it just goes back to the, the competitive nature of college golf right now um, and the number of high-quality players that are um, going to university to play now. Um, it's just getting you ready. I honestly didn't feel... Uh, too different. Um, maybe it was because there was a lot of those kids that uh, had just come out of college that, you know, I'm playing against those weeks. Um, so familiar faces, but I just think in general, the setups we're playing, the courses we're playing, the competition we're playing against, um, you know, college golf is a, is a great place to go get ready for the tour now. Cole, prior to college golf, you grew up playing golf in Maine. You had a lot of success there. But Maine is not exactly known as a hotbed uh, of producing potential PGA Tour players. So describe what it was like growing up in Maine and, and playing golf there. Yeah. Um, basically, I would I would hang the clubs up for the winter and play hockey. And then uh, <laughs> when when the snow melted and the holes were put in the ground, you'd, you'd get after it again. Um, you know, I think it provided sort of a, a nice balance in my life growing up, um, which I think, you know, that more and more kids are kind of specializing in their sport um, early on now. And I didn't really have that option. Um, so it just sort of made me, I think, a more well-rounded well athlete. Um, but yeah, I mean, great place to grow up, not necessarily a great place to, to golf for half the year, at least. And that balance gets harder to maintain once you're actually doing this in the paid ranks out there, Cole. Next season, if we have this conversation a year from now, it's going to be a season of firsts for you. So this is kind of a season of lasts. Are you a little bit nostalgic for what you're about to leave behind? Yeah, I said it to a teammate um, after our event at Olympia Fields, saying, "Wow, I don't, I'm I'm not going back there for a little bit." Um, you know, the schedule for the most part remains 
pretty much the same every year. So I get to go back to these um, great venues and, and uh, yeah, I've started to started to feel the closure a little bit, but at the same time, there's, there's too much to do for this team and uh, too much to get ready for. So kind of keeps you in the present. And Cole, speaking of that team, take us inside the ethos, the personality of this Florida State golf team. Uh, you, what's the camaraderie there like? Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. I think we have a, a great balance of an extremely competitive environment where, you know, anybody at any moment is can compete for a lineup spot. But at the same time, um, you know, coach talks about it all the time, be your brother's keeper. And, um, you know, we have each other's backs. Uh, when we're out there competing, we want to kick each other's butts. But at the same time, you, you know, um, I do anything for any of those guys. And I know it's the same across that locker room. Yeah. Well, be your brother's keeper. Words to live by, Cole. Thank you so much. Good luck with the rest of the season. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Well, when golf today rolls on, we're meeting the newest graduates from the Epson Tour to the LPGA. Jenny Coleman finished inside the top 10 in the season-long race for the card, and she joins us next. What are her goals as she competes with the world's best players next year? You'll find out. Well, it was just more than a week ago when 10 players earned their LPGA Tour cards in the Epson Tour Championship by finishing inside the top 10 in the season-long race for the card. Since the inaugural year in 1999, 192 athletes have graduated to the big stage. There they are celebrating a nice champagne moment. Names like Gabriella Ruffle stand out. Natasha Andrea Un, she actually belongs to Lake Merced Golf Club. I've played a lot of golf with her, and she is incredible. And a name that you see on there is Jenny Coleman, who will return to the LPGA Tour in 2024 after a season of conditional status in 2023 after playing in 23 Epson Tour and three LPGA Tour events this year. She finished seventh in the season-long race. This year, she earned her first career Epson Tour victory. And with that, we'd like to welcome in Jenny Coleman. Jenny, you know, first of all, congratulations. What has life been like since locking up the tour card? I'm sure that it's a bit of a relief knowing that you're going to be playing a full schedule next year. Yeah, just finished up the season and then just been enjoying an off season. Finally get a couple months off to have some time to rest, relax, and just enjoy what I just did and then get back to it next year. <laughs> I'm curious what the stress levels were like, Jenny, because back in 2019, you also made it through the Epson Tour money list and you were third on the list that time. Maybe a little bit more breathing space back then than, than this year. What was the stress level like for you over the last few weeks of the season? Yeah, it was still pretty stressful um, in 20. Uh, 19 I actually was like eighth or ninth going into that week and since I finished second I moved up so that was a little bit tighter than this time around because I uh, was fourth fifth sixth whatever coming down and still mathematically had a chance of getting knocked out but not as much as last time and yeah you still want to do the best you still want to play your way into it you don't want to wait for somebody else to not bump you out but yeah it's always always a tough feat jenny you've experienced high highs and low lows in this game um, in 2017 you first had your lpga tour card and then you've kind of gone back and forth uh, to epson tour what has stood out to you as some of the biggest challenges that you've learned to overcome in your professional golf career 
Yeah, there's just something about you can practice as hard as you want and everything and have a good plan and then just <laughs> golf. I mean, you'll have some days with good luck, some days with bad luck, and you just have to be as patient and trust the process. You've played several seasons out on the LPGA Tour. Do you feel as though you're better prepared heading into 24, even if it's just a matter of the confidence of having earned your way back there? Yeah, it definitely always helps to have that confidence of, yeah, I've done this, I'm back out here, I've been here before. It's nice every time to see the courses more and more. I think that definitely helps to have an advantage of knowing the strategies and the different conditions that the course has uh, played under in the last few years. And yeah, just use that. Now, Jenny, beyond confidence, is there anything technically over the past year that you've been able to unlock that's allowed you to go and win on the Epson Tour and get to this new place that perhaps uh, we'll see some success on the LPGA Tour? Yeah, definitely my um, approach shots. Uh, it's usually my one of my strengths, but if I can get it really dialed in, I have a lot of birdie chances, a lot of easy pars, and just stress-free rounds. And if I get the putter hot, it's it's going to be a low day. What's the goal then in the 2024 season? I guess everyone wants to win. Do you have other benchmarks that you've set for yourself? Um, I mean, you always want to be in the top 60 and get to the CME, but you just have to just keep it one tournament one day at a time. Don't get too future-oriented and, and get distracted. Just play your game and keep growing your game every day. Well, Jenny, congratulations again. I know you mentioned that you're going to have a little bit of an off-season, so I hope you get to take a moment to take advantage of it. Great, thank you. Well, coming up, two personalities as different as the two sitting at this very desk. Rex Hoggard is as cheerful and as optimistic as me. Rex Lavner, well, he's as cynical and pessimistic as Kira. Rex and Lav, after this break. And it's time now for a media roundtable, and we're joined by the Waldorf and Statler of Golf Channel, Rex Hoggard, Ryan Lavner. Ryan, you might actually have to Google that reference out there. But Rex, you're in Miami for the finale of the Live Team portion of their season. Leaving aside all of the framework discussions and whatever else may happen, in this game. Is this team event getting any more traction than it seemed to have a year ago? I don't know that it's getting more traction. Certainly there's more conversation about one of the things I think we always looked at when it came to live golf. And, in, and as sports fans, we love the transaction and they've done a pretty good job of selling that transaction. For example, I'm really curious to talk to Brooks Kepka about what happens to his team next year. One of his players, his brother Chase, is going to get relegated. Is another member of his team, Matthew Wolf, doesn't seem like he's going to be around for another year. So there is an element of interest only because who's going to fill out that rust roster? It seems to me that Live Golf is not coming after PGA Tour players at the moment. So I'm really interested on that level. And Lev, speaking of transactions, there's a lot going on right now with, are, is the PGA Tour going to continue with that fr framework agreement with the Saudis? Are we going to have private equity now that we are going into this final event for the, the live season? What are you hearing in terms of the, the current status of that, which I know has been very clouded over the last few months? Well, it's, I think it's un, as unclear as ever. We're now just you know less than three months until at least uh, the initial December 31st deadline uh, for the framework agreement to become definitive. It does seem likely at this point that that could get delayed. Uh, multiple media reports uh, suggesting as much. And it's 
I think the PGA Tour and Live, certainly in 2024, are going to continue their separate ways. This is going to continue to dominate the discussion over the next three, six months until a deal gets done, if a deal gets done. Uh, but at least for the time being, the two tours can continue down their separate paths uh, and see where we are, I think, at the beginning of 2025. Ryan, sticking on that framework agreement, one of the points in that was this idea that the PGA Tour would make good faith representations to allow Live to be granted world ranking points. And the decision was made last week that that wasn't going to happen anytime soon because they're non-compliant. Phil Mickelson, predictably enough, was out there spinning these kind of conspiracy theories about a, an industry-wide collusion to stop Live getting traction, getting those points. Does he have a point in, in the arguments he was making? I mean, to be clear, it's getting a little bit hard to keep track of all of Phil's conspiracy theories. If I, if I am right about this one, he is essentially saying that the majors are, are trying to continue that division to keep Liv from poaching all the players uh, on the PJ Tour. I think he is right in the sense that right now, as it stands, after this OWGR decision, it's hard to imagine any PJ Tour players who have any sort of sense of competitive spirit or real ambition in the sport that they would jump over to live knowing what they know now uh, and that they're uh, essentially their entrance into the major championships got a whole lot harder uh, to kind of disprove Phil's conspiracy theory. If live wanted to, they could essentially call the OWGR's bluff, make some of the tweaks that they suggested primarily around the close idea of a closed shop uh, and adding more players for potential promotion or relegation and see what happens. I'm not sure if Liv actually wants to go that direction, though. And Rex, sticking on that same frame of thought with the OWGR, now that you're on the ground in Miami, you're going to get a chance to really speak to players in person and get their reaction to uh, the OWGR not awarding world ranking points to Liv. Uh, what have you heard so far? Well, I think to Lab's point and what Phil was trying to explain, I think most of the players that I've spoken to since the announcement by the official World Golf Ranking have said that the world ranking points issue was kind of a non-starter anyway, even from the live perspective, because they kind of knew that they weren't going to change their format and that that was always going to be a hang up for the rankings officials. The other half of this is I had one player explain to me that the points have bled off so much that even if they did award points right now, it's probably not going to move the needle that much for a player who would win an individual event like Brooks Kepka did in Saudi Arabia a few weeks ago. So I think the bigger idea moving forward to at least the players I've talked to is take the world ranking out of the equation. That's clearly not going to happen at this point and put it on the doorstep of each of the major championships. Let them carve out whatever kind of statistical category they want to, whether if it's top five off the order of merit for live golf, whether if it's the, the top 10, whatever the case may be. I think the idea on the live side is the major championships are going to be hurt if those players are on the field. So it behooves those majors to carve out some sort of exemption for them. And Rex, something else that the live players don't have access to right now is the TGL, the Tech Golf League of Tiger and Rory. The final field was announced earlier this week. So we, we have a better picture of who's going to be there, where it's going to be. What is your reaction to the product so far? I think it is interesting. And again, this goes back to what I talked about when Eamon asked me off the top. I, I think as sports fans, we love the transaction. So now all of a sudden we know who's going to be in the fields for each of the TGL uh, events. Now you want to know who the teams are going to be. Who is Tiger going to be with? Who's Rory going to be with? I think this fills a, a gap that we've always had in golf, that we've never sort of had that team aspect of it. Lav and I go back and forth as bad GMs of fantasy football teams. That's kind of the fun part for a lot of fans. <laughs>
Lav, you don't really pay any attention to any team sport that doesn't involve Georgia, but can you see a scenario here where fans will care enough about the team standings in TGL from week to week? I don't know, Eamon. I still have a hard time grasping the whole TGL. I tend to be a sort of a visual learner, like I need to see it to believe it. I'll certainly cover the first one just to kind of get my head wrapped around what we're doing. Um, it, can can fans kind of invest themselves in this? I don't know. We haven't seen that with Liv necessarily. Is that because of the players who are the captains of Liv and the, and the players who are on those teams? Do they not have the, the proper star power or the firepower or the intention grabbing uh, folks like like Bryson and 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 Brooks were for the PGA Tour. That hasn't necessarily translated to more interest uh, in their live teams. I, I'm a little bit skeptical uh, at the moment, but I think I'm willing to reserve judgment until I actually see it up close and personal. I don't think the product is necessarily for folks like you and I. I think it's definitely tailored uh, to a younger generation, even though I am uh, 36, and degenerate gamblers, of which uh, Rex and I are neither. Good to know. Uh, Ryan, uh, you and Rex both said on your podcast earlier this week that you were big fans of Lexi Thompson in Shriners last week. Do you think that it is a bit of a miss now that we do know who is going to be in the field at the TGL, that there are no women on that list? You know, I would have probably loved to see like a Mel Reed or a Charlie Hull in the banter that they could have with the players. Is that something that you think maybe could come down the pike at a later date as well? Because that seems like a, a great way to enhance that product. Oh, it certainly seems, Kira, like a, a natural evolution of what TGL is and certainly what it can become, you know, just like the PGA Tour players are largely concentrated in the South Florida area, pre predominantly in Jupiter, the exact same scenario uh, is in place for the, the LPGA as well. It's easy to see, you know, the Corda sisters teaming up, Lexi uh, teaming up. You could have uh, teams involving Lydia Ko uh, and some of the Korean players who have been so dominant on the LPGA over the, over the past couple of years. They're all if not in Florida, uh, certainly within close proximity. And I can see them making the jump as well. I, I think certainly in year one, TGL needed to launch with the biggest and the best PGA Tour players. But I can see that certainly being a natural evolution the next two, three, five years. Rex, the PGA Tour this week is in Japan. It's, it's a far-flung event. It's limited man field, just 78 players, no cut. And it's a strange makeup of the field because some guys who already have secured status for 2024, like Morikawa, Keegan Bradley, they're in the field. There are guys fighting for that status who are in the field. But there are a lot of guys in this fall series fighting for status next year who aren't eligible for that field. And there isn't room in the field for them, even if they were eligible for it. Is this sustainable, the Zozo, in its current format at this particular time of the year when we keep getting told that every FedEx Cup point out there matters so much? I had not even thought about this, Eamon, until you brought it up as part of a, a possible conversation piece this afternoon. I got to be honest with you, you made me mad when you brought this up because I hadn't really thought about it. And the best example is all you have to do is go to the first guy on the alternate list for this week's event in Japan. It's Tyler Duncan, who is probably not going to get in. He's right now, he's 95th on the points list. There's a lot for him to play for. If he can get inside the top 60, that gets him into the two of the first three signature events going into next year. There's a guy a little bit further down, NJ Duffy, who's 128. He even has more to play for. He has his job to play for next year. He's definitely not getting into that event. And I think if you look where it is on the schedule, there's only three more fall events after this. And so all of a sudden now this starts to combine, this starts to pile up, and you have guys who are scrambling for their jobs, doing everything they can 
to keep their tour cards. And you end up with a field like this where you do have players like Ricky Fowler and Colin Morikawa, which is great for Zozo, and that's what the sponsor wants, but it's probably not all, all that great for the players. All right, Rex and Lev, always a pleasure. I'm sure we could sit here for hours and hours and discuss, but uh, we appreciate your time. Rex, enjoy uh, Live Miami.